Luke chapter 9, verses 46 to 56. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. There's once a time when if your grandfather was a member of a particular church, well, that was the church that you would probably attend for your whole life. It'd be the church you'd get married in, the church that your kids would be christened in. It'd be the church that you'd probably get married in and most probably be buried from. And if a person ever resigned their membership from one denomination and became a member of another denomination, that was a really big deal. It was, it was almost unheard of. For such a thing to happen, there would have to be some kind of major spiritual awakening in a person where, where their eyes were open to some obscene theological error that's been present in their own church and, and so they would then feel compelled that they had to move to a different fellowship. But it was almost unheard of. And of course, there's a problem with that. It was the done thing to remain in a church, even if biblical truth was absent and there was a false gospel being preached. But things have changed a lot. Today, it's almost the inverse of that, where especially in bigger cities, but even in a little town like St. George, there's a constant migration of folk from one fellowship to the next fellowship to the next fellowship. We have become a generation of consumers. And this is spilled over into the church, where we're looking for the weekly specials. You know, what's the weekly specials on offer at this church? What services will this church provide for me and my family to consume? And if this church is over here is offering a tastier product than where I am, then yeah, I, I might shift camp. And if in a year's time, another church is offering an even tastier product, well, I'll shift camp again. And then you might ask, but, but what's the teaching like? Oh, it's really engaging. Yeah, but what are they teaching? Oh, I don't know. Does it matter? It makes me feel good. See, that's what consumerism is about. We, we move to where we, and we buy what makes us feel good. And as we've become a generation of consumers, sadly, that has had an horrendous effect on how churches function. 
and on how church leaders and pastors function. Church growth, it seems, has become, well, it's less about preaching the gospel to unbelievers to make new converts, and church growth is now predominantly through marketing and presenting a slick image of how wonderful our church is. Basically, it's saying our church is better than your church to, to try and draw people away from where they're at so that we can add numbers and add momentum to where we're at. And often, the, the first to be drawn away will be those who are disaffected and disengaged. So the church is supposed to be a reconciling community of Christ. But rather than being that, that place where brothers and sisters in Christ are bound together in the love of Jesus and where we, we actually address what, what is not good between us um, and we are then reconciled in fellowship, rather than doing that, we take our pain, we take our unforgiveness, we take our discontentment and shift camp. And, and then rather than encouraging others in their ministry and, and rather than stepping up and beginning to serve God in areas where we, we are noticing a need in our church, some come to the conclusion that their feeling of discontent and their feeling of our church really needs to be having this, instead of seeing that as God pricking that person and saying, hey, I might be calling you to serve in this area, instead of that they go, my feeling of discontent is actually God calling me to go somewhere where, where I can get that done to me, where it's already provided. And the effect that this has on pastors and leaders in the church is dreadful. It's something that I'm aware of, like Karen said before, that you know, there's something that she has to confess. And for me, this is something that I have to fight against all the time. Because the temptation, you see, is to lose the spreading kingdom of God focus of the church. Instead of recognising each individual church as being part of the same vine of Jesus, the default position too often becomes that until they prove otherwise, my default position is, I'm going to see you as, as, a, as a, an invasive weed or a parasitic plant that's going to suck all of the life and goodness out of the vine. Now, of course, we pastors, we would never tell our congregations these things, so pretend you didn't hear it, because you, you, you all think we're such wonderful people and we're all such godly folk all the time. And so we, we want to present an image, oh, yes, yes, we're very happy for that other church. We're so happy that they're being blessed with growth. <laughs> but in my experience, under the surface, if you can get a leader of a church to open up, you will very often discover a distrust and an enmity a, a distrust born from the sadness over the shifting of, of the flock or the poaching of the flock from one paddock to another. And in my experience, the only ones who don't really have that sadness are usually the ones who have been quite successfully marketing their churches and growing at the expense of others. And in their minds, this is all okay because we're, we're growing because our church is giving people what they want. You know what they're saying? Our church is better than your church. We're doing things right. You're obviously not. 
God is active in our church. Maybe he's not active in yours. The spirit is alive in our church. Obviously not yours. The Bible reading today, an argument arose among the disciples of Jesus over which of them was the greatest. Can you believe these guys? Jesus has actually just finished speaking about his sacrificial death for sinners and the disciples are arguing over their pride of place. Now, we obviously, we can't hide anything from Jesus. Um, so Jesus knew exactly what those disciples were thinking. He takes this little child and puts him by his side. Now, what does that little child have to offer? Apart from being cute, he's a nobody. He hasn't done anything great. He doesn't have any power. He doesn't have any influence. A little child is helpless and not at all notable. And Jesus says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. To receive is to welcome, it is to accept, it is to give hospitality to. And Jesus is saying, if you welcome, if you accept, if you give hospitality to the most lowly, to the most unimportant, you've done it for Jesus. And if you've welcomed Jesus, you've welcomed the Father. But more specifically, it's about welcoming in the name of Jesus. It's not about how we naturally view other people. This is something that, that changes in us as we become Christians. Uh, the relationship that we have with Christ changes the way we value everything. It changes very much the value that we place on other people. So, like most folks, we'll be really amazed if, if, if a sporting star becomes a Christian. Christian churches will be talking about phrases. Yeah, can you believe so-and-so, the footy player, he's become a Christian. Wow! Isn't that amazing? Or, or a movie star, if they become a Christian. Wow, isn't that amazing? Or, or how great is it if a millionaire joins our church? Or, or a doctor, or a lawyer, or a CEO? But the relationship that we have with Christ, it changes completely the value that we have on other people. And perhaps especially, to, to receive anyone in the name of Jesus is wonderful. And perhaps especially, to receive the lowly in the name of Jesus. That is Christ-like. That is to minister in the name of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. And Jesus said, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. We don't aspire to greatness, at least not in the way that the world views greatness. And did you notice here that how Jesus said great? He didn't say greatest. In the kingdom of God, we don't compare ourselves to others and we don't compare others to others. So on a personal level, as disciples of Jesus, we don't compare ourselves to other disciples of Jesus, for the better or the, for the worse. We don't say, oh, I'm better than they are, and nor do we go, 
Oh, I'm no good. Look how wonderful they are. Nor should we do it on a church level. He who is least among you all is the one who is great. See, Jesus sees things very differently to what we do. I think when I was preparing this, I thought of the church in Laodicea who were filled with pride. And this is what they would say of themselves. We're rich. We've prospered. We need nothing. And Jesus said, you've got no idea. Because what Jesus could see is they were wretched. They're pitiful. They're poor. They're blind. They were naked. They were a church who were going, our church is better than your church. And Jesus said, rubbish. They marketed themselves as being great, but they're nothing of the kind. He who is least in, among you all is the one who is great. By the way, greatness, it isn't about being prepared to do a stint in a lowly place. One of my pet hates, please spare us the celebrity photo ops where a greedy rich person flies their private jet into a third world country for a day and there they have the photos taken of them handing out food to the poor and nursing some cute little poor child. And then at the end of the day, they get on their private jet and fly all the way home again. Greatness isn't about prepare, being prepared to do a stint in a lowly place. And for us, greatness isn't about us deciding, I'm just going to go and do a short-term mission trip somewhere. Greatness is about being lowly and humble. True greatness consists of lowly service. You know what that tells me? In the eyes of Jesus, the one who cleans up the local church toilet after there's been an unfortunate accident is greater than the internationally acclaimed worship leader who's up on the stage and everybody's lifting their hands up and jostling. Are you with me? The one who is least among you all is the one who is great. You see, modern church marketing, it wants to present an image of greatness and that image of greatness is then used to attract people. But the way of disciples of Jesus is lowly, humble service. And in the name of Jesus, we welcome the lowly. We welcome those who have nothing to offer us. There's nothing in it for us except for greatness in the eyes of Jesus. Anyway, how did those disciples respond to what Jesus said? So they're arguing about how great they were and Jesus gives them that lesson on it's actually the one who is least of all who will be greatest. How did they respond to that? Well, well John speaks up. It's sort of like John's looking for an exception here. He says, well, Jesus, there was this bloke we come across the other day and he was casting out demons. And he, he, he was doing it in your name, but he's not one of us. Like he's not in our circle, not in our inner circle. Like we're special, you know. And he kept on doing it. We kept on telling him to stop and we tried to get him to stop. And you can imagine what's going on in John's mind. Surely, surely it's right for us to stop someone from ministering in Jesus' name if he's not one of us. 
And I think Jesus' answer would have quite surprised him when he said, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Now, if I was to use the, the analogy of the vine, this man is obviously a follower of Jesus, so he's part of the vine, part of the vine of, of, of the kingdom of God. Just not the exact same branch as the disciples. You see, John was trying to do something that he shouldn't. He was trying to contain it. He was trying to restrict it, this spreading kingdom of God. And when we get to chapter 13, Jesus really ramps up the teaching about the kingdom of God. And he tells us that the kingdom of God is, is like this tiny seed that gets planted and it, and it grows and it spreads out into this, in this tree of many branches that birds can come and nest in. And he talks about this tiny little piece of yeast that gets put into a whole big lump of dough and it works through this whole lump of dough. And this is how we should view the church today. Wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached and wherever the name of Jesus is being proclaimed and worshipped, these are not our competitors, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so shame on you, John. Don't stop that man from casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Shame on you, pastors and leaders of the church today, for, for when we see fellowships, other fellowships, as the opposition, or for when we see them as a potential source of new members for us to snatch away to our own show. Shame on me for when I have held other churches by default with distrust and suspicion. Jesus said, the one who is not against you is for you. Now there's a lesson for us here, and it's a hard question for us to, to fathom here. Who is against us and who isn't? I guess what the Lord has been showing me today is our, our default position is until we see otherwise, we should view them all as being part of the same vine. If any person is working for the kingdom and not against the kingdom and not against the ministry of other disciples of Jesus, they're part of the one vine. It's an ex example of the spreading kingdom of God. But now, of course, there are limits. Um, and Jesus warns us a lot about false teachers and, and Paul addresses a lot in his letters. And so the test comes when, when false teachers, which we're told will be common, when false teachers preach a message which is against the true gospel of Jesus. But as I said, I think what the Lord is showing us here is our default position is until we see that false message, we should assume that, yep, these are brothers in Christ. When we get to chapter 11, verse 21, we're actually going to hear the inverse of this when he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Anyway, Jesus' point, the kingdom of God is bigger than those 12 disciples. The church is bigger than those 12 disciples. And you know what? I don't think you'll be surprised to find out that the kingdom of God in this town 
much bigger than Bush disciples. In the history of the church, there have been times when, for instance, that the church in Rome would say, if you're not part of our church, then you're not real Christians. Um, there's been times when, and, and not only the Roman church that have done that, uh, just about every cult has said that as well. Um, if you're not part of us, then you're not real Christians. Um, we, we sort of got a little tiny taste of it when we first started Bush Disciples. Um, prior to that, we were, I was using the Anglican Church, and they're very happy for us to use the Anglican Church at Bandy for our services there. But as soon as we became Bush Disciples, they said, we don't recognise you as church. You can't use our building anymore. Um, the locals were quite unhappy about it, but the word was sent from the bishop that couldn't be overruled. Now, if someone is working for the kingdom and not against the ministry of other disciples of Jesus, we're part of the same vine. So that got me thinking, what, what does a kingdom-focused church look like? Well, it's not about having that slick marketing image because in Christ, the lowly are great. Right? If you want to, if somebody says, oh, what church do you go? You, you, you tell them, oh, yeah, we go to Bush Disciples. Oh, what's that like? Oh, well, we're, we're a bunch of people. There's nothing great about us, but we love Jesus. And we just love to get together and fellowship together and praise his name. Don't, don't, try, and, don't try and sell us. Just tell people about your faith. So a kingdom-focused church isn't about slick marketing, nor is it about church growth per se. It's not about numbers because we're told at the end times people are going to flock to false teaching. And nor is it about bleeding other fellowships to try and increase our own. Jesus said, the one who is not against you is for you. So we don't want to be against other churches by trying to snatch people away from there. We want to be preaching the gospel and sharing our faith with others who are not yet believers. A kingdom-focused church sees themselves as the lowly because we are. There's nothing great about us. It's because Christ had mercy on us, that in his great love, he gave us what we don't deserve, salvation in his name. And so we welcome the lowly because we are the lowly. They'll fit right on in. A kingdom-focused church serves the Lord humbly, and it's not at all pretentious. We're not full of ourselves. We're not boasting. A kingdom-focused church is a place where the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't get changed to try and attract people who want a different type of greatness. And so we welcome the lowly in the name of Jesus. And my prayer is that we here would be that kind of kingdom-focused church. Now, at this point in the Bible reading, it, it seemed like a good place to finish um, but I realise we do need to go just a little bit further to get a bit more of the essence of what Jesus is saying here. So we're just going to touch briefly on what we're going to cover more fully next week. So we have the next scene where the time is coming for Jesus to be crucified, so he sets his face to head towards Jerusalem. Now, obviously, Jesus has got a fair entourage, a whole heap of people following him, and so when they come 
travel through towns and stuff, it's only polite to ring ahead and let them know that, hey, look, we're coming. Uh, you might want to order a bit more food, kill an extra lamb and put a bit more bread on. So he, he, he couldn't ring ahead, so he, he sent uh, messengers ahead of him to let them know to expect a crowd. Anyway, they're going to be passing through Samaritan territory. Now, we all know the story of the Good Samaritan, don't we? Now, the whole point of the story of the Good Samaritan is you don't put the word good and Samaritan together, right? That's sort of like saying good New South Welshman. Oh, oops, sorry, I've just said it to some recent imports. <laughs> All right, it's like saying good Victorian. Are there any Victorians here? <laughs> it's, the, the thing is that the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other, right? It was a very even-handed relationship. Because the Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated them back, right? So they got on famously. They had a history, you see. The, the Samaritans, they started out as one of the, some of the, several of the tribes of Israel. And there was a time where the kingdom split. We had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the Samaritans, they then started intermarrying with people of, of other nations and God had told them not to do that. Why? Because he said, if you intermarry, then you're going to take on all of their idolatrous worship. You're going to start worshipping all of these other gods and idols and stuff. And that's exactly what happened. Anyway, the Jews and the Samaritans had a long-running dispute over the proper place for the worship of God. God had chosen Jerusalem as that spot. That's where you build the temple. And Jerusalem was in Jewish territory. And the Samaritans were like, well, well, we're not going there. We'll, we'll set up our own, right? They came up with their own alternative place of worship in Samaria. And, and so this had been a long-running dispute as to where they should worship God. And we can see that reflected in the animosity here. It's not that just, just that Jesus was a Jew. And it's not just that Jesus was heading through town. It was the fact that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And that's why they didn't welcome him. Enter James and John. What fine examples of Christ followers we have here. It, it, it's no wonder Jesus gave these two brothers the nickname Sons of Thunder. Because when they heard about what happened... Um, let, let's admire them for their faith, right? That they had lots of faith and they had confidence in the power of God. They said, look, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them? And you can just imagine them going, <laughs> right? It, it's just like, seriously, what kind of followers of Jesus are these? And Jesus, no! Um, Jesus rebuked them. I'd love to know what Jesus said. I'd love to know what he said. We don't know what he said. We just know that he rebuked them. Now, keep in mind, Jesus has just said, the one who is not against you is for you. Well, these ones, they definitely are against us. They're against you, Jesus. Surely it's time for the judgment of God. No. If you are looking for judgment, then you don't understand the kingdom of God. There will come a time for judgment. And that's when the justice of God will be poured out in his judgment upon all who haven't been purified by the blood of Jesus. 
There will come a time for that, but not yet. And the disciples of Jesus aren't the ones who pronounce judgment. The Lord will be our judge when he comes in glory. As we minister in the name of Jesus, never lose sight of the fact that we are the lowly. As the lowly in Christ, we are great. And in the name of Jesus, we will be rejected as he was rejected. And in the lowliness of rejection, we are great. Slick church marketing wants to achieve greatness in the eyes of the world and avoid rejection. But the trouble is, our Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel are offensive to the world. The world generally hates the message of Jesus. That message is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so worldly greatness is never our aim. Faithfulness to Jesus is what we're called to. And as we humbly walk in the Lord, expect to be rejected, just as he was rejected. That doesn't mean that we retaliate. That doesn't mean that we then tweak our, our message or tweak our image to, to reflect worldly greatness so that people will want more of us. We just simply move on, proclaiming the kingdom of God wherever we go. He who is least among you all is the one who is great. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we know that we are nobodies. There is nothing marvellous about us. There is nothing great. And so, Lord, we repent of pride and in humility we bow before you and proclaim you as Lord. And in you, there is greatness. It's all about you. Lord, may your name be proclaimed and may we be a welcoming people, welcoming those who are the least. For that is what we are, the least perfect, the least famous, the least of achievers, the least of the haves versus the have-nots. And Lord, we pray for the building of your kingdom, which is far greater than our little patch. Help us to encourage those who are for you and who are for your gospel and to guard against those who would corrupt your gospel. And may we always entrust judgment to you. To God be the glory forever. Amen.